Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we've got a real treat for you. Dr. Chris Kenobi, who's written a book. Actually, he's written a book about the most common cause of blindness in the United States, which is age-related macular degeneration. But the story behind the book and his research is just extraordinary. Dr. Kenobi is really an exemplary physician, really the true type of physician that you want. Someone, he's trained as an ophthalmologist, so he, if, if any type of professional to write a book on blindness, it would be an ophthalmologist, no question. So not, not only does he have the proper training, but he's got the curiosity and the drive and the passion for the truth. And in fact, you know, he, he's associated, or at least aligned with the Weston Price Foundation, and he reminds me of Dr. Price in many ways, who a hundred years ago, as a dentist, went around the world figuring things out. And Dr. Kenobi didn't go around the world doing this, but essentially did virtually by just exploring the medical literature in, in, in a way, in a fashion I have not seen previously. It's just extraordinary to read his journey and how he figured these things out. And what he found out is, I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's, it's going to astound you. It astounded me. I first found out about him when I was watching the ancestral health videos, and these people are kind enough to, to stream all the videos so you don't have to go to the conference, you can see it. And there's no question he had the best presentation of the entire conference from my perspective. And because it, 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 he gives you insights into the, a common disease that virtually no one knew about. It's really, it's shocking. So with that introduction, I want to welcome and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Nobody. Dr. Mercola, it's, it's a, a, a great pleasure to be here and to be with you. It's an honor. Um, and uh, the uh, comparison to Dr. Price, uh, I, to tell you the truth, it gave me chills uh, when you said that. I don't deserve that at all. Well, that, but I'm going to try to do it, but <laughs> you do, in my point, because, I mean, isn't it? What you've done in your area is comparable, in my view. I'm going to try to live up to that uh, as, as much as possible. And I, I, I honestly did. Dr. Weston Price, um, you know, is actually one of my heroes. And I consider myself an acolyte of Price. And that is really what I tried to do in my research is as much as possible is to follow in his footsteps and ultimately that is the next step that i want to do is actually physically go out into the world and oh. evaluate these people that you know in the, the few niches around the world that are still consuming ancestral diets and analyze their macular degeneration but to the best of my ability to do that through the published research and all of the history that's what i tried to do and we can get into all of that but we'll get into that and i'll tell you you actually did dr price 
uh, a step above that. And that's largely for the reason that uh, he couldn't do what you did because the access to the literature was not available and as easily as, as you could do it. So you're, you've done the, the foundational, laid the foundational premise uh, academically and then went, and I did not realize you're going to go out across the world, but you're going to, a hundred years from now, people are going to be describing you in the same, <laughs> the same uh, frame as they do now, Dr. Price. So yeah, thank you for your work. So let, let's, let's shift over to what you found, which is just shocking because as a trained physician, you know, we are taught that macular degeneration is something that's always existed and it's inevitable consequence of aging. And you just found something that was that was an absolute untrue. So why, why don't you start there, or maybe even before if you want, what led you on this journey? Right. So the um, I'll tell you what initially led me on this journey was my own health problems. So I honestly, and I'll keep this real this part really short, but I began to suffer with uh, arthritis when I was about 34, 35 years old. And, uh, and it actually progressed rather severely. And I saw physician after physician, most all of them, my friends, family doctors, internal medicine doctors, orthopedic surgeons, rheumatologists, up until the point I was 50 years old, which was uh, eight years ago. And I was treated with an immunosuppressant. And the very next day, um, I dropped that and because I'd heard about the paleo diet and I switched over to paleo and and by that I wasn't convinced but I eliminated grains and dairy and in a nutshell in about eight or ten days my arthritis was 80% better and this was so incredibly shocking to me after suffering for 15 years that I really wanted to know all I could know about nutrition it just changed my life and i started and i started investigating then and um to be honest you know you know this was in 2011 and then for the next couple of years i investigated nutrition as much as i could and i was still i learned so much but i was lost until i came across the research of weston price and for those of those viewers who don't know him, I'll just say very briefly that Weston Price was a highly accomplished scientist, researcher, and dentist who back in the 1930s spent the better part of that decade evaluating people uh, all around the world on five continents, 14 nations, uh, tw uh, hundreds of tribes and villages, thousands upon thousands of people as they transitioned from native traditional diets over to westernized diets, which, and Price called this, the, the foods that the people westernized their diets with, he called these the displacing foods of modern commerce. And he defined those as refined white flour, sugars, canned goods, sweets, confectionery, and vegetable oils. And what Price found was that as people transitioned to those foods, they began to uh, develop uh, uh, all of these diseases of civilization, it started with, interestingly, arthritis, cancers, they lost immunity to infectious diseases like tuberculosis, and they developed, uh, they developed severe tooth decay, 
Um, their children developed uh, abnormal dentition, crooked teeth. Um, and, uh, you know, so that in a nutshell is what Price found. But did Price did, Price analyzed these diets from these native traditional people. He sent back samples of, of these uh, foods from all around the world, five continents, thousands and thousands of samples and had them analyzed. And, and the take home point here is that he found that these native traditional foods contain 10 times as many fat soluble vitamins, which is vitamins A, D and K2, four times as many water soluble vitamins, which is all the B vitamins at C, and one and a half to 60 times more minerals than did the American diets of his day. And that was the 1930s. And so Price published this in 1939 in two books, 1939 and 1945. And so when I, Read Price's book cover to cover, 500 and some pages. Yeah, but there's a, there's a lot of pictures in there. Yes, and it just this just transformed my life. And so that was in 2000, early 2013. And so then I began to understand that it was it's these displacing foods of modern commerce, our westernized processed foods, which is really that I I simplified it down to refined white flour, sugars, uh, polyunsaturated vegetable oils, and trans fats. When we consume these foods, that we develop this uh, essentially a mushroom cloud of chronic non-communicable disease. And this is, includes heart disease, cancer, stroke, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, overweight, obesity, all the autoimmune disorders, and so forth. So I understood this in 2013. And later that year, it finally hit me. And I said, I asked myself, could macular degeneration be another one of these diseases? Might it be a disease that follows processed food consumption? And that question changed the course of my life. So that was you know, coming up on almost six years ago now. And uh, so I began an investigation in 2013 and in early 2015, I left uh, ophthalmology practice and pursued this full time because I felt like it was the only way that I could pursue this and do all the research and write a book and publish papers and things like that to try to get this word out. And, and basically the, the, you know, our research supports the hypothesis at, with, with every last detail. Well, I didn't realize that you actually had left your practice and were doing this full time, but it's not surprising because the amount of work that's in this book is just extraordinary. It's obviously hundreds and hundreds of hours. It's much more work than most is put in, put in most of the health books that I read. And you did the, a complete historical analysis. You got all the ancient ophthalmology textbook from 100, more than 100 years ago, and you search for this thing. I want you to describe that. And, and in conjunction with that description, also explain the conventionally held position before you started your research about AMD and that most all, and I think it's probably still being taught today, if I'm not mistaken, in that they, they think that it's been around since time immemorial and, and it's a natural part of aging. Right, yeah, absolutely. So the conventional orthodox 
allopathic thinking, which is, you know, from allopathic medical schools, which is really the only, this is primarily almost exclusively where ophthalmologists are trained. The belief system for many decades has been that age-related macular degeneration, AMD, is a disease primarily driven by aging, just that we're getting older, and genetics. And as of 2016, uh, the, the belief is that 45 to 70% of this disease is driven by genetics. So they've connected 52 different gene variants, the single nucleotide polymorphism, SNPs, 52 different genetic variants to macular degeneration. That's the belief system. And then there's a little bit of concern about environment and then smoking and well, we get overweight and, um, you know, we don't exercise enough. So a, a bunch of other things that are kind of thrown in there to top it off. But again, up to 70% of the disease driven by genetics um, and, you know, the majority of the rest driven by aging. And so, of course, uh, you know, with the hypothesis that was in my mind, I questioned that and I knew that in or if I was going to be able to uh, draw connections between westernized diet and macular degeneration, the first thing I needed to do is to go back and explore all the history of macular degeneration. And honestly, I thought that I would be able to go on to PubMed or, or uh, <laughs> Google Scholar, and I would find some you know, excellent reviews and some papers that had, had covered this, and there was nothing of the sort. So I spent, in 20, uh, early 2015, I spent three or four months solid just doing nothing but trying to research the history of this because I couldn't find any kind of review that had ever been done of, of this, as you know, we physicians, the medical schools don't teach us anything about the history of disease, and it's an, it's an incredible oversight, because if you don't know where you've been, you don't really know, you don't have a perspective. So anyway, so I, uh, I began investigating this, and essentially, here, here's what I found. So, the, I mean, the question is, is, you know, did macular degeneration always exist? Did it exist to the prevalence that it is today, which is epidemic? Um, and if not, how did it change? And did it change in correlation with our diet? So here's the first thing I found is that ophthalmologists could begin to see the macula, the central retina, beginning in 1851 because this German physician and physicist uh, Hermann von Helmholtz designed the ophthalmoscope. That's a little device you use to look into the back of the eye. And he published this design in a brief little book so that this technology could spread. And it rapidly did. In fact, there was lectures given in London, England to the ophthalmologists by 1854. 1855, ophthalmologists started producing atlases of the, of the retina. That They began taking pictures. Uh, even in the 1850s and 60s, uh, uh, using lamps for light. And, but interestingly, they, 23 years went, went by after Helmholtz's uh, design of the ophthalmoscope was released. And by the way, within 10 years, the ophthalmoscope uh, 
use had spread entirely around the world. It was on every continent. And so, but by, it took 23 years before the first ophthalmologist described macular degeneration for the first time. That was Jonathan Hutchinson in London, England in 1874. And he described what looked like four cases. And then another 11 years of silence goes by. And then a German ophthalmologist, Otto Hobb, talked about macular degeneration in a lecture, didn't present any cases. Then 1895, the same ophthalmologist, Otto Hobb, looked into this and he reviewed 50,000 ophthalmic patient medical records and determined that macular degeneration was as rare as traumatic maculopathy and myopic maculopathy. These are extremely rare disorders. For example, I saw one case of myopic maculopathy, which is a nearsighted kind of macular degeneration. I saw one of those in my entire career, 24 years of ophthalmology. Um, we go to 1889, um, uh, Austrian ophthalmologist uh, Ernst Fuchs pub published his first textbook. In that textbook, it's an 800 page textbook. It's right, this is it right here. <laughs> yeah. You must have been a small fortune getting those books. Yeah, I did. This is 800 some page, uh, about an 800 page book. And in this book, he wrote one sentence about macular degeneration. It was basically like a footnote, as if this condition does exist in the elderly. And in just so you know, you know, Fuchs, Dr. Fuchs, this, off this ophthalmologist, would become the most prominent ophthalmologist over the next four, almost five decades, up, up until 1940. And in his 1899 book and his 1919 book, they were almost identical. The 1899 had one sentence. The 1919 book, he, he used part of a paragraph to describe macular degeneration. And in both of those, up through 1919, he still said myopia was the main cause of macular degeneration. And then we go to, and if we jump forward to, well, just for example, there's a whole bunch of these kinds of texts like Julius Hirschberg, one of the most prominent names in ophthalmology, 1914, he published a textbook of all the history of ophthalmology. He did not mention macular degeneration in that entire book, 1914. 1927, um, the, this man, Sir Stuart Duke Elder, published this book, and this was his first textbook. He became the most prominent ophthalmologist from about 1940 to 1970. Then Duke Elder, in his, that 1927 text, he did not mention macular degeneration. In fact, in the opening uh, paragraphs of the book, he said the two most common diseases of ophthalmology are glaucoma and cataract. He did not even mention macular degeneration. I read the entire book to make sure. So, but, the, but then by 1940, Duke Elder, who didn't mention macular degeneration in 1927, he did, in his next textbook, 1940, he dedicated 13 pages to the condition of macular degeneration, 17 images, six of which were in full color, and he called macular degeneration a common cause of failure in central vision in old people. That's a quote. And so, so in 1927, I don't think he even knew what macular degeneration was, which was typical. Mm -hmm. And by 1940, it was becoming common. By 1975, in the US, we had the Framingham study, and at that point, uh, Americans over the age of 52 had 8.8% .8 of them 
had macular degeneration and 27.9% of those over the age of 75 had macular degeneration. So if you do the math, that translates to about four and a half million Americans affected with AMD. And if you look back 50 years previous to 1925, there was no more than about 50 cases of AMD in all of the world's literature. So now let me just say that ophthalmologists, their, you know, their first knee-jerk reaction to this is, well, they weren't looking. You know, they, and, and I'm telling you, if you, it, it, they say that because they haven't read these textbooks. If you look at these textbooks from the 19th century, these clinicians were extraordinary clinicians. Their attention to detail makes ours look pathetic because they didn't have MRIs, they didn't have OCT scans like we use and fundus cameras and fluorescein angiography. They didn't have any of that. They had an ophthalmoscope and they had their eyes and they did extraordinary exams. In the 1880s, they were <clears throat> excuse me, using six different dilating agents by the 1880s. Um, by 1880, uh, two ophthalmologists, Landold and Snellen, had collected 86 different types of ophthalmoscope. By 1901, they had collected 140 different types of ophthalmoscope. By 1913, Landold had connected, had collected uh, 140 different brands, models, versions of ophthalmoscope by 1913. And yet, between 1851, when they could first you know, discover macular degeneration, and 1930, again, no more than about 50 cases of AMD in all the world, world's literature. It's just an extraordinarily rare disease. So if I jump forward to today, you know, bring, you know bringing us all the way up to today, there are, uh, it's estimated that in 2020, there will be 196 million people with macular degeneration. By 2040, 288 million expected to have macular degeneration. And as of 2006, 3.15 million people blind in the world in both eyes. This is blind, both eyes, from this disease. And so that's, that was the latest data we had on blindness. So I can't even imagine what it must be today, but I'm going to estimate it's four to five million people blind from this disease. So I, I did the math, and it turns out that, we're, that in this world, at least 270 people will go blind every single day due to macular degeneration. In other words, they've lost vision in one eye, and then you know today they're going to lose vision in their second eye, and it'll leave them permanently blind with a big central blind spot. Yeah. Well, that's such an extraordinary story, and thank you for doing that diligence. I mean, you really essentially established the new norm for the historical precedence of AMD, which was prior to your investigations and literature review, really unknown in conventional ophthalmology and medicine. So that's historic work that you've done, and I really appreciate all that. And in many ways, it parallels the incidence of two other major killers. Well, AMD is not a killer, but chronic diseases, which would be heart disease and cancer. And due to foundationally the same problems, which was the same issues that Price found when he was focused, his focus was on the, the dental decay. Right, exactly. Um, 
Uh, you know, I just reviewed this because I'm working on another paper and I'm actually working on a, on a second book. Um, would you mind if I hit on some of these other? Sure, absolutely, go for okay. it. I think you'll find it interesting and I think our audience will too. So, because here's the thing is that macular degeneration is strongly associated with heart disease, type two diabetes, obesity, and metabolic syndrome. Now it hasn't been connected to cancer directly, but I'm sure if we you know, dug down that path, I think you could easily make that connection too. But so let me just hit this real quickly. So because if we look at what's happened with those diseases historically, they all run parallel. So let's take heart disease, for example. So there was a study published in 2012 that looked at the history of, of, uh, of all these chronic diseases, basically the killers over the last 200 years. This was done by Jones and colleagues. And they published, what they found was um, evidence in uh, the town, sounds funny to me, but the town of Boston, Massachusetts, 1811, where they had all the causes of death for that year. It was 942 deaths. And there wasn't a single death attributed to the heart. Although there was 25 sudden deaths. So even if you said all of those were, you know, were, were heart related, which is impossible, but if you said they all were, that's still only two and a half percent. In the 19th century, there was, to the best of my ability to tell, and I've read a number of reviews, there was about eight cases of heart attack, MI, coronary thrombosis, in the entire 19th century. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know yeah. it was that low. That's eight, crazy. Eight cases. And then uh, Sir William Osler, who was one of the most famed physicians, he uh, was one of the founding partners of Johns Hopkins Medical Center in uh, Baltimore. He, uh, in 1897, he published a paper in which he had reviewed his previous 21 years of hospital experience. And he noted about roughly around six cases of angina, chest pain that might be cardiac, not a single MI in that 21 years. 21 years of hospital experience, not a single MI, about six cases of angina. That was 1897. 1910, he gave a lecture in London and he reviewed his, the next 13 years and he said, um, in these 13 years, 1897 to 2000, to, I'm sorry, to 1910, there was an additional 208 cases of angina, still no heart attacks. 1912, uh, this physician, um, John Herrick, uh, published the first case of heart attack in the United States where they actually connected the symptoms, the chest pain and all that, to uh, an MI uh, uh, confirmed on autopsy. So this was the first confirmed case where you know they had symptoms and pathology, right? And they nobody took him seriously. In fact, this was ignored for about a decade. It wasn't until the 1920s they started taking this seriously because, as you know, by the 1920s and 30s we started getting heart attacks. It's just like macular degeneration. And then by the 1950s and 60s, we're, we're getting, you know, epidemic proportions, right? But in, 19, in 1900, this research from Jones 
they showed that 12.5% of the deaths in the year 1900 were cardiac. But these weren't coronary artery deaths. They were all valvular uh, deaths. So they, you know, uh, cardiac valve related, which is all infectious etiology. is driven by rheumatic fever, syphilis, and endocarditis, right? They still didn't have any coronary artery disease. So 12.5%, none of them coronary artery disease. Um, so if we fast forward to, to 2010, what we have is 32.3% um, of the population dying of heart disease in the US. So we went from extraordinary rarity in the, in the 1800s to the leading cause of death, taking one out of three lives with, with heart disease in that time frame. Um, so now, cancer, let me hit this real quick. This is pretty interesting too, and I'll make this quick. 1811, that same study out of Boston, um, they attributed uh, five out of the 942 deaths to cancer. That was 0.5%. Hmm. Um, 1900, the work from Jones, what they discovered was 5.8% of people died of cancer in 1900. Advanced to 2010, 31.1% of the people died of, of cancer. So again, so it was one in 188 deaths due to cancer in 1811, one in 17 in 1900, nearly one in three in 2010. Um, so, uh, okay. That, that, that increase is actually more extraordinary uh, from 1800s to the 1900s because it's a tenfold increase. I mean, it was almost unheard of and to go up tenfold from 0.5 to 5%. I mean, five to 30 is, is bad, but you know, it's not as big a percentage increase. Right, right. So, okay, type two diabetes, again, which correlates with macular degeneration to a degree. Um, it, again, the evidence shows that it was clearly rare in the 19th century. 1935, they did the first analysis that looked at this. The prevalence of type 2 diabetes, or just, I'm sorry, it was diabetes in general, which most would be type 2 probably then. But anyways, 0.37% in 1935. 1960, 0.91%. It was a 2.5-fold increase. Wow. 1991, 2.97%. That's an eight-fold increase. Uh, 2010, 6.95%. 2015, that's our latest data, 9.4%. Wow. So we're from 1935 to 2015 was a 25-fold increase in the prevalence of type 2 diabetes. 25 fold. All right. And then I'll just hit obesity real quick. There's a researcher by the name of Scott Allen Carson that's done some brilliant work looking at it because this data is so hard to come by looking at obesity and all these diseases back in, you know, kind of in antiquity or back to the 19th century. So Carson analyzed uh, the, the, uh, uh, the uh, prisoners in Texas and in Nebraska, for example, because they weighed and they, they checked their height. And so he figured out their BMIs. And for, for the entire century, the entire 19th century, the BMI of all these men, uh, teenagers to 
80s, 70s and 80s years of age, the, B, the, BM, uh, the obesity was 1.2%, okay? So by a 19... A BMI over 25 or 30 or what was it? BMI over 30 okay. was 1.2% in the end, so from 1800 to 1900. So if we advance forward to the next, the next data we have that's earliest really is 1960, and that was, it was 13% obesity in 1960, 13% obesity in 1980, we stayed pretty level. 1988, 24%, or 23%, 1988. Uh, 1999, 30.5%, 2005, 34%, 2011, 35.7%, and 2015 and 16, 39.8%. So, uh, and it's very similar in the youth. You know, we see the youth, what, uh, obesity was less than 5%. Uh, uh, before, uh, by, uh, um, I'm sorry, in 1963, and it just keeps going up. Today, 18.4% of children between uh, ages 12 and 19 are obese. It's, it, and if you look at the adolescence, it's 20%. So uh, we could go on and on. It's the very, oh, yeah. so we, we could talk for hours, but boy, yeah. I, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you finding this information and sharing it and put putting disease in its proper historical context, which as you mentioned earlier, is rarely ever done. So this is massively valuable information and really supports the foundational approach that you and I both share to address the cause of this disease and pretty much most all disease, chronic degenerative disease of Western civilization. So why don't you highlight that now and then I want you to also to share some of your exciting examples of what you've done to actually reverse this disease, because I mean, this is all pretty depressing information that you share, but I think it's important and it really historically incredibly valuable, but we want to give people some hope that they, that they can turn this thing around, that you don't have to follow these patterns, that you can in fact avoid virtually all of them if you, if you follow a simple strategy. Okay, sure, right. So, um, well, what I'll tell you, first of all, is that uh, I always had an interest in nutrition, even though up through 2011, I really didn't know anything about it. <laughs> the only thing I knew was just uh, pretty much what I would get from men's health and those kind of things uh, from magazines. Uh, I just was interested in fitness and you know, trying, to, trying to help myself mostly. Um, but one of the things that I always had an interest in was talking to my patients and what I, you know, began to just notice was that, that there was a pattern and I noticed that people who ate junk food, processed food, were the ones getting a lot of these chronic metabolic and degenerative diseases. Even, even you know, before I had investigated any of this, it started, it started clicking with me. Uh, a little bit, and so let me go back and give what I think that our you know our viewers need to know is that when I investigated the history of our diets, here's what I found is that no matter where you lived, any place in the world up until 1880, you had to consume a native traditional diet. You could not consume processed foods 
of any sort. There was no man-made processed foods of any sort with the exception of sugar. And sugar was an extremely valuable commodity uh, up through the end of the 19th century was when the price started to come down. But, but uh, so then in 1880, we got vegetable oils. The first one was cottonseed oil. And so manufacturers determined that they, uh, they could take cotton seeds, which were a waste product from, from cotton harvesting. They just could take the seeds, crush them, heat them, press them. And we could talk about all the, you know, the, 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 the processing they go through, but that they could produce the, this seed oil. So 1880 was the first time we ever had uh, seed oils. And what happened was, is that eventually we got soybean oil and we got, then we got, you know, I don't know the exact order, but you know, it's these poly, mostly polyunsaturated oils are soybean, corn, canola, cotton seed, rapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, and rice bran. That's primarily all of those. And all of those uh, have been produced since 1880. And they've kind of overtaken uh, lard, butter, and beef tallow. So if, if we look at the data in the year 1900, 99.5% of the added fats in our diet were, came from animal fat. They were lard, butter, and beef tallow. And if you advance to 2005, if you move 105 years ahead, 86% of the added fats in our food became vegetable oil. And you know this has had, to me, the most extraordinary, devastating effects to our health of anything so but anyway so we got those in 1880 and and because they were cheaper uh, uh, manufacturers sold them to try to replace butter and lard and that's exactly what they did um, 1911 Procter & Gamble they had partnered with this German chemist EC Kaiser who had figured out how to bubble hydrogen gas through this cottonseed oil in the presence of a nickel catalyst and produce trans fats, these partially hydrogenated vegetable oils. And, and Procter and & Gamble, who's their, their, uh, they were candle and soap makers, and their candle business was drying up because of uh, electricity. And so they tried to figure out a way, what are they going to do with you know, their business? And so they, they, they partnered with Kaiser, who showed them how to make this trans fat product, which looked kind of like lard, and they decided to sell it as food. So that began in, uh, in 1911, uh, or was it 1909? It was one of those two, uh, sorry. But, but anyway, so as we know, that those uh, partially hydrogenated vegetable oils slash trans fats began also to overtake butter and lard. And so if you just, so all of these just on a trajectory, they're all going way up sugar, um, vegetable oils, trans fats. Okay, then the fourth was um, refined white wheat flour. So up until 1880, all the flour in the world had always been ground on stone mills, which would give you a whole grain flour. 1880, they, uh, they introduced roller mill technology and roller mill could shear away the bran and the germ of the, of the wheat, uh, of the grain, and that would re effectively remove B vitamins, E vitamins, fiber, minerals, omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. So it produces uh, a nutrient deficient food. So if we, if we look today, 
um, 20% of the world's diet is wheat. And in the US, 85% of that is refined, meaning it's nutrient deficient. It's kind of like uh, sugar in a lot of ways. So if you advance all the way to 2009, those four foods, sugar, refined white wheat flour, polyunsaturated vegetable oils, and trans fats, they make up 63% of the American diet. And this is the recipe for disaster because this is what it sits at the base of all of this metabolic disease, including macular degeneration. And by the way, I think, you know, Lauren Cordain points out that if you throw alcohol in there, it pushes that processed food consumption upwards of 70%. So that means that Americans are getting about 30, 35% of their foods from sort of native traditional foods, but even those are not native traditional, as you know, Dr. Mercola, because those are coming from a lot of uh, animals that are raised in CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations. They're fed GMO corn and soy and all that, and it changes their fatty acid profile. So even those are not native, traditional, good, healthy foods. Yes, indeed. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And clearly sugar is not going to be beneficial for reducing the risk for disease. But if you were to rank order the items that you mentioned, would you agree that the industrially processed uh, vegetable oils, seed oils, would be probably the most pernicious one on the list because of the fact that sugar you can burn, especially if you're working out or having hard labor, physical labor, and not necessarily cause excessive oxidative stress, but these fats, these transformed malignant oils actually get embedded into your membranes and stick around a lot longer and cause pathology or lead to pathology. Right, I would agree with that 100 and 10%, I believe that these polyunsaturated vegetable oils are sheer danger. These are the most dangerous thing in our food supply. So if we go back to those, you know, here's what it takes uh, is in order to produce these is, is um, these have to be uh, crushed, heated, pressed, then they, then they go into a, a petroleum-derived hexane solvent bath. Then they steam it, degum it, and then chemically alkalinize, bleach, and deodorize this. And it's heated uh, four or five times to high temperatures. And all of this produces um, a very dangerously oxidized oil, but it looks pretty in that, in that bottle. Um, and you know, but the interesting thing, so, so these are oxidized, they're dangerous, they're dangerous in the bottle. If you cook with them, they're going to oxidize further when you consume them in, in metabolism. As you know, Dr. Mercola, these, these oxidize further, they create oxidized linoleic acid metabolites. Linoleic acid is the, the primary fatty acid from these seed oils. It's the 18 carbon uh, uh, oil or fat that comes out of these. And uh, these are connected to all of these, uh, of our non-communicable uh, diseases of civilization, if you will. And I think that they're, they're driving all of this disease. I think it's the beginning point for most all of these diseases. And one of the things that all, that all of these disorders from heart disease to cancer, obesity, 
macular degeneration, Alzheimer's. They, one of the things that they all share in common is mitochondrial dysfunction. And I believe that these are driving that very condition. So when we start digging down into the, all that complicated molecular pathophysiology, I believe that they're at the root of this. They're driving uh, these oils because they are oxidized and because they oxidize further, they create reactive oxygen species and they create these oxidized linoleic acid metabolites. And these wreak havoc all throughout the body. And if you look at, let's just take the, 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 the opposing view that's been held for five decades, you know, that all this disease was driven by saturated fat. Well, let's talk about the mechanisms by which that happens. We're done because there are no mechanisms that I've ever uh, come across. I don't think there's any molecular mechanisms to tie saturated fat. Here's the mechanism. You want to know what it is? Sure. Saturate, it's, it's guilt by association. Because right. when they do these epidemiological reviews, they assess either by food diaries or sometimes chemically the amount of uh, saturated fat. But what they fail to include in the analysis is the amount of the trans fat and these, these other types of oils that are damaged and highly oxidized. So the, the, they parallel each other and, and the saturated fat is vilified by association. That is exactly right. That, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's, so that's the mechanism. But anyway, thank you for sharing that. I want to give, give, the, give our listeners and viewers some encouragement and hope. And why don't you share the strategies you've used and the successes you've had in actually reversing this disease and sort of set a framework for expectations that people can have. Because as you said, millions of people are being blinded. You have several hundred people being blinded every day in the world. So why don't you discuss that? Because I think it's useful. Okay, sure. So um, in order to do that, let me draw on some of the research that we did because the most important thing to realize about diseases like heart disease, macular degeneration, and Alzheimer's disease is that they have a very long incubation period. So if a child is born today and um, his parents are consuming processed foods and he you know the first thing he he gets is uh you know processed food and he consumes that for 40 50 years it takes that long before he has a heart attack right and you know it's very similar for macular degeneration um you know, and and of course alzheimer's is probably even longer but um the, these diseases, j just like when you're exposed to a cold virus and maybe you get the disorder three or, you know, you get the cold three or four days later, chronic diseases have an incubation period too. And it's very long for these, for these diseases. And it's the exact reason that we, that we don't have uh, randomized controlled clinical trials for heart disease and Alzheimer's and macular degeneration. And they're never going to be because you can't control people's diets very well in the first place, and you certainly can't control them for decades. But so if we look at our research, um, I'll just give it, I'll throw out a couple of quick examples. So 
because we looked at the data in 25 different nations as it related to uh, processed food consumption as uh, we use prox the proxy markers were sugar and vegetable oil. So we track those because they're proxy markers of processed foods. If those are in the, when you're getting those, you're getting processed food generally. And so we track those to evaluate processed food consumption essentially. But in any case, if you look at Japan, for example, which I've always said it's one of the, it's one of the quintessential nations that illustrates this point. In the 1970s, from 1974 to 1979, there's a study that shows that their prevalence of macular degeneration was about 0.2%. And then uh, 30 years later in 2007, their prevalence of macular degeneration went to 11.4%. And that is the most conservative number. So that shows that their macular degeneration elevated 57 fold in a 30 year period. Now this cannot possibly be explained by aging or genetics. But when you look at the data, here's what happened. Their sugar consumption approximately doubled. That wasn't the big issue. Here was the big issue. In 1961, they were consuming nine grams per person per day of polyunsaturated vegetable oils. By around 2000, they were up to 40 grams a day. So their vegetable oil consumption increased four and a half fold. And so with that, and, and everybody knows if you investigate just a little bit, you can Google this and find very rapidly that they began to westernize their diet. They started getting fast food uh, uh, restaurants and so forth. Uh, and they started getting, you know, their, all of our processed foods, they started consuming those over the last five decades. Um, New Zealand is another one where, you know, we see that in back in uh, 19, 67, I believe it was, their prevalence of macular degeneration was 1.3%. And by 2014, it was 10.3%. So it elevated eightfold. Um, again, this couldn't possibly be explained by anything about their genetics, aging of the population, or their environment. None of those had changed. But what did change was they were consuming. Uh, a much higher level of vegetable oil. The vegetable oils was uh, something like one gram a day in 1961. And I believe it was in the, I don't remember exactly, but I think 20 some grams a day, you know, within about 30 years. So it just went up and up. Um, so here's what I would say. Now, now, you know, since I published this research really, uh, well, we did. We published the research actually in a scientific paper in 2017, but I published the book and began to speak about this publicly in 2016. And we have a lot of people that report to me over the past three years. And what we have found is we're getting almost all the people report to me that their macular degeneration has stabilized. A few of them report that their vision is better, and some report that that their, their maculas look better, that the ophthalmologist tells them they look better. Um, so far, I've only gotten one report uh, from a person who was at least transiently worse and seemed to be following this diet, or she was trying to, 
but she was traveling worldwide and she knew that that's the problem is when you leave home and begin, you know, begin to consume foods, you're just at risk because you don't know what's in them. And that's where, that's where restaurants, they, almost all restaurants are going to cook with these polyunsaturated oils. It's almost all soybean, soybean and canola oil in the United States. And by the way, people don't need to pour or ever have a bottle of vegetable oil in their house or pour oil into their foods in order to get massive amounts of these. The average American, our data showed uh, by uh, just a few years ago was getting 80 grams of vegetable oils per day, which, yeah, 80 grams a day. So it was, it was zero in 1879, and by 2010, it's 80 grams a day. And out of that, about 18 grams of that, or more, but at least 18 grams a day, is nothing but linoleic acid, the 18-carbon omega-6 fatty acid. So. That 80 grams is 80,000 milligrams. Yes. Most supplements come in milligrams, so they don't come in grams. Right. So, uh, so this share with this, you know, actually, on that point, you know, I mean, I had known about this for a long time, but your book was very inspiring and in, in some ways a bit problematic for my, me personally because. It's, it's virtually impossible for me to look at someone eating French fries, a whole plate of French fries, and, and, and just not have a really adverse visceral reaction of disgust and not, you know, realize that they don't have any idea of what their damage they're doing to their body. If they knew, they wouldn't be eating that. And I almost want to scream at them. And sometimes I do, actually, if I know them well enough, that they can't do that. That, that, that is just an absolute desperate prescription for disaster. So, I mean, you've just got to understand that it's foundational basic. But let's go back to the successes. Because I think in your book you share, and the book is a few years old, and you tell us the name of your book again too. But in the book you shared like nine case reports of people actually improving quite substantially with with your program. Right. Um, I don't know if you can see. This is uh, a copy of the book. It's Ancestral Dietary Strategy to uh, Prevent and Treat Macular Degeneration. That's a great title. And um, we, th this book uh, may eventually be repurposed to ophthalmologists, optometrists, and vision scientists, because I'm working on another book that'll be simpler for the public. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so there's. Well, let me let me just give my comment on that because it is it's a very intensive book. If you're a physician, then it, or if you have uh, macular degeneration, it's definitely a book you want to get. But it is it goes very deep, and and if you're a student of health, I think you'd appreciate it. If you would appreciate Mac, uh, Weston Price's book on the physical degeneration, you'd like this one too. But it's, you're very detailed in this book. You really go into a lot of specifics. Right. I really felt like that if I had to be, I'd rather be a little over the head of people than a little, a little too, uh, too, you know, dumbed down, a little too simple. Um, because the, the take home points are so simple. One of the things that 
I remember, you know, back in that era, 2011 to 13, when I struggled so much trying to understand nutrition and what was causing us to have all this disease. And I, and like I said, I was lost until I came across Weston Price's book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And I have always said to people, if you only read one book about nutrition in your life, read his, you know, don't read mine. Any, you know, I think it's the sort of the nutritional Bible. Once you understand that you have a framework that sets the stage for us to understand everything else. Um, it's really just such a shame that that's not taught in, uh, in medical schools. Um, so uh, yeah, on this, I wanna point out with regard to these, uh, an, an inter inter interesting fact here, a couple of facts, Dr. Mercola, is this research that comes from uh, uh, Tanya Bla Blasbog. I mentioned it in my book, but she's from the NIH and they did research that looked at the omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acid uh, consumption as far back as they could, as far back as we had data to 1909, comparing that to 1999. And what they showed, so they, they did a sophisticated model, which is really pretty, pretty interesting. So they determined that our omega-6 consumption in 1909, and remember, we were already getting some seed oils by then. But anyway, it was five grams a day in 1909, and that elevated to, not, uh, 18 grams a day by 1999, which is the data I just gave you, that we're consuming about 18 grams a day of omega-6, we're just talking linoleic acid. Um, the omega-3s in 1909, 0.76 grams per day. And that elevated uh, to 1.8 grams a day by 1999. So even our omega-3s, have doubled, you know, while our omega-6s in that time frame more than tripled, our omega-3s doubled. And here's the point I'd like to make is that if you lump these together, in 1909, we were getting 5.76 grams of omega-3 and omega-6, and in 1999, that jumps all the way up to 19.8 grams. And the reason I'm making an issue of this is because there's a lot of interest in the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. And that today ranges from about nine to one to 20 to one uh, in the United States. But I think the much bigger issue is not the ratio so much, uh, but the total amount of these fatty acids we're, be, we're getting. Because, um, you know, let's be real, uh, omega-6s are highly oxidizable, but uh, omega-3s are also a polyunsaturated fat, and they also oxidize. Now, they don't turn into the dangerous oxidized linoleic acid metabolites like the omega-6s do, but they're still, they still uh, oxidize. So. But wouldn't you agree that if you had a non-oxidized healthy source of omega-3s, especially animal-based, like the, that have DHA and EPA, that you may benefit from four to five grams of those a day? Yeah, uh, personally, I, you know, what's interesting is, is I think if you, um, and it's just guesswork, 
But I think if you went back to, let's say, 1870s, um, you're getting maybe a half to three quarters of a gram of omega-3 per day would, would, is what most Americans were probably getting. And, uh, and the omega-6s, maybe twice that much. So maybe a couple of grams or so of omega-6s in, in that era. So the total would only be two or three grams of omega-3 and omega-6 total. I mean, as you know, these are really not, we're, today we're consuming so many of these that they need to be burned for fuel. Mm -hmm. Instead, they're really meant to be, um, they're meant to, uh, uh, they're, they're meant to be used in our uh, in our cell membranes, structures, structures. yeah, structural or constituents, yeah. like cell membranes. Yeah. So, um, Blasbog's research showed that um, that these even the long chain uh, omega threes and omega sixes. So both the arachidonic acid, which is the the twenty carbon, the longer chain uh, omega six, and the long chain omega-3s, the EPA and DHA, all of those have gone down in consumption since 1909. And the reason for that, of course, is the fact that people are getting their, their uh, animal foods mostly from CAFO-raised animals that are eating uh, grain, corn and soy, instead of eating grass, right? And so, so, you know, it tells me that, you know, in the 19th century, when nobody had, virtually nobody had macular degeneration, they were only getting really tiny amounts of omega-3s and omega-6s, and almost nobody in the United States was getting fish uh, on a regular basis. I mean, they were mostly consuming uh, beef, pork, and fowl. But do, you, do, you, do you think that was optimal, though, just because they, that was the observation doesn't necessarily mean that that was the, the most highly beneficial. Right, I do think seafood is really valuable. Um, and I, I recommend uh, seafood all the time, especially it, uh, wild caught, mm -hmm. if you can get it. So yeah, because you know, just for example, DHA, the 22 carbon omega-3, plays uh, a prominent role in the macula. So, um, gosh, I, I, I'll be honest, I eat fish probably about three times a week and I eat a lot of it. Um, and so I do think fish is really beneficial, but the really big picture is to me that we don't have to have fish and seafood. If you were consuming grass fed, organically grass fed beef, pork, which doesn't even exist anymore hardly, and uh, fowl, uh, you know, I mean, uh, free range or pastured fowl. I think that alone, you know, that that's if we could just go for the low hanging fruit, uh, that makes I mean, that, would that omega three be ALA or would it be EPA and DHA? My uh, impression is that most of it's ALA in the animals. Oh yes, absolutely, it would be ALA. Yes, yeah, I'm just saying that you can get the. Uh, um, well, you can get, you get all of those, you get all of those, obviously, even from plants. Yeah. Or plants. Yes. Yes. So, 
Yeah, which is, you know, it's still, not that you don't need ALA, I think you do and benefit from it. And, you know, it's flax and hemp and chia, they're all good sources. Uh, but there is certainly benefits from taking some preformed longer chain fats like EPA and DHA. So I want to go into another question now because we're, you know, our time is coming short uh, to an end. And there are, you know, I, I like to use supplements as a tool, not as certainly the only one. Clearly the best resource strategy to, to treat and prevent macular degeneration is looking at the diet and, and addressing all the factors and variables you so eloquently described. But if one wanted to use a supplement, classically, the carotenoids used to support retinal health would be xanthine or zeaxanthine, lutein, and lutein. Those are the two primary ones. And I'm wondering if you can comment on that and then also comment on astaxanthin, which appears to be an even more effective um, carotenoid to, because it's certainly more potent as an antioxidant. And I'm wondering if you have any experience on uh, synergistically combining them with your dietary approach. Sure. So, you know, since we're on the subject of supplements, let me just touch uh, really quick on the uh, ARIDS study. Uh, and I can simplify this very quickly. And why don't you tell us what ARIDS uh, is, represents or is the acronym for? Yes. ARIDS is the age-related eye disease study. And this was the big study that began back in the 90s where they looked at, uh, you know, vitamin, mineral supplements for macular degeneration. And this followed about 4,000 people over a period of about five years. Excuse me. And um, these, these people got, in the, in the treatment group, they got vitamins E, C, beta carotene, zinc, and copper. Or they got a placebo, essentially. And what they found was that, um, here's the simplified version, is that uh, in stages one and two of macular degeneration, so the earliest stages, there's no benefit at all with the supplement. If you're in stage three, which is moderate AMD, both eyes, or stage four, which is advanced AMD in one eye, 20% of that population went on to more advanced AMD over that five-year period. This is the group getting vitamins, right? So 20% advanced. In the control group, that had moderate AMD or advanced AMD in one eye, 28% advanced to more, uh, to uh, worse macular degeneration. So the difference was 28% versus 20%. This means 8% of the subjects getting supplements were better off. 8% is one out of 13 people. It's really one out of 12 and a half. Mm -hmm. You can't have it half, so it's one in 12. So the NNT, the number needed to treat is 13. So what people need to know is if they have moderately advanced AMD or advanced AMD in one eye and they take these supplements, there is a one in 13 chance they will benefit. So that was the ARID study. Uh, what they do is they say it was, they were 25% better, but they 25% was the relative risk. That's the difference between 28% and 20% because 8% is about 20, 25% of 28%. That's what they're doing. So they kind of, it's true, but we, we want to know our absolute risk. They're telling us relative risk. Absolute risk, you have a one in 13 chance of benefiting. And all the studies show that you cannot prevent 
macular degeneration with supplements. There's never been a study that showed that, shown that. So then they did the ARIDS-2 study, and in that study, what they did was they gave them the ARIDS formula, and they also gave uh, omega-3 fatty acids and or uh, the carotenoids, lutein and zeaxanthin. And so what they found in the primary analysis was they said there was no benefit for the omega-3s and the carotenoids, um, the lutein and zeaxanthin, no benefit at all. And then they went back and reanalyzed all the data again and determined that there was a slight benefit in, you know, in favor of supplementing with lutein and zeaxanthin. So if you look at all the data, there's just a slight benefit for lutein and, ze and, lutein and zeaxanthin. Um, but just so I said this, it's really important to realize that there was some other research done by Carl O and colleagues, and this has been taken seriously uh, that they looked at genetics versus the supplements and, it, and without getting into the genetic component of it, what we realize is that potentially around 30% of patients taking the ARIDS formula, the original ARIDS formula will be worse off yeah. than if they didn't take any supplements at all. Yeah. And so 8% so were better, but up to 30% could be worse. So I think, you know, it's, ooh, it's, a little bit. No, I would agree. But, you know, the, I think a lot of it may be related to the specific formulations they use. Uh, vitamin E is a supplement. It has to be is potentially highly problematic, and it's been shown to cause lots of potential problems. Largely as a result of using high doses of a single isomer, the alpha tocopherol, uh, and and none of the tocotrienols. So right. if you get 400 units of alpha tocopherol and leave out the gamma, the deltas. And, and don't give them any tocotrienols, that's going to be a problem. Now, if you give them the right doses, you know, there could be significant benefits. So, and then they, I suspect they use a synthetic carotenoid. So there's a lot of potential uh, conflicting variables in there that could have contributed to those results. But if you're right, if you follow that formula specifically, you have to be highly irrational to do that. Right. And as far as your question about astaxanthin, Dr. McCullough, I don't have any knowledge yeah. That that had, that there has been any studies relating to that. Yeah, it's, it, the, the people, the, the the contention is that it seems to be useful. I don't know if this is anecdotal improvements or what, but there's been some reports of a benefit in the treatment of age-related macular degeneration. So, I just thought you might be aware of that. If anyone, it would be you that would know that most likely. But anyway, that's good to know. So, I mean, the, the end result is you're not going to go wrong by following. A diet of eliminating these processed foods. I mean, that is the key. And not only do you, do you eliminate essentially the common cause of blindness, but potentially even more concerning. I mean, who wants to go blind? But who wants to lose their mind with Alzheimer's disease, which is closely associated with it? That is exactly right. And so, you know, I tell people that, that really this an ancestral diet is to me it's just about the simplest diet that you could ever follow uh, and you can you can make any kind of food you want any type of ethnic food whatever you want to eat i don't care if it's steak or donuts you can make those ancestrally if you eliminate those processed foods 
So when people come to me and say, well, can I have Mexican food or can I have, um, you know, Chinese food? Yes, yes, you can have all of those, but eliminate, make sure that, I mean, the only way to have them safely generally is to make them yourself or to verify that they're being made without polyunsaturated vegetable oils, uh, without trans fats, without, you know, essentially try to minimize refined white flour, sugar. I mean, this is the big picture is that you've got to get, if you do those things, I think that you're 95% of the way there in terms of correcting your diet uh, uh, just by doing those things. It's, now I will say it is not easy. And if you don't cook, if you don't prepare your own meals, then I think you take a very serious risk unless you, know that your meals are being properly prepared without those kinds of components. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I just like to add one thing that I'm sure you'll agree with and just reaffirming the ancestral approach is that uh, if you're going to choose to eat meat, which of course you have to pay attention to the quality of the meat and not capo, but you just don't want to eat meat. You want to eat nose to tail. And that means including ideally the organs and probably even more importantly, the connective tissue, because it's something that's really been eliminated from our diet in the last generation or two, the connective tissue. And fortunately, there's been a resurgence and interest in this with collagen and bone broth, which will provide similar benefits because they're high in the amino acids, specifically glycine, that if you just eat muscle meat exclusively, you're going to get relatively high levels of methionine. And high levels of isolated methionine is, from animal protein can be highly problematic but can be virtually, the, that risk can be virtually eliminated by having the glycine from the connective tissue. And that glycine methionine ratio counteracts most of the risk. So simple strategies, ancestral approaches, and you, you, you've got it, you beat it. That's right, I couldn't agree more. Um, I like to, I personally like to eat a lot of meat, but I've been uh, consuming uh, uh, bone broth uh, with added collagen now for a couple of years and um just seem to be doing you know fabulous with that yeah especially, uh, yeah, the, uh, especially if you're engaging in exercise uh because your connective tissue your tendons and ligaments tends to get injured when you're weight trained or something so it's almost everyone's getting over time but once you start increasing your uh collagen and bone broth or connective tissue from from the animals those injuries kind of disappear i mean you just don't get injured you don't get those 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 problems anymore just great Right, exactly. Yeah, I just want to reinforce the the statement you made about the organ meats, and this is this is you know getting a little bit deeper, but uh, there's absolutely no question in my mind, and, and all the data supports this, that macular degeneration patients are vitamin A, D, and K2 deficient, and we're we can get those from organ meats, especially liver, beef liver, chicken liver, and then cod liver uh your fish liver oils are fantastic sources of vitamins a and d and so uh and and actually so are the um uh fish eggs the roe mm -hmm. so for people who eat sushi those are great sources of vitamins a and d but for people who don't eat liver at all then i really strongly recommend they consider an extra virgin cod liver oil uh, supplement. And it, it's just, you can take that like a tablespoon 
twice a week essentially and get great doses of vitamins A and D, but those are critical nutrients. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more also, but, I, but my uh, caveat on that would be that we, weren't, we have the metabolic capacity to utilize vitamin D orally, but I, it is in my mind very clearly not the optimal form. You're designed to get it from the sun shining on your skin. There's just not a micro down in my mind because not only you get the vitamin D, but you get the infrared shining on your, your uh, skin and increasing nitric oxide and powering up your cytochromes uh, to improve more ATP generation. So it's a whole wide additional variety of benefits. And personally, I have enough. I mean, I probably get some vitamin D in my diet, but not much. And my vitamin Ds are extraordinary. And I've been swallowed and taken any supplements for over 10 years on vitamin D. So I think ideally get yourself in an environment where you can get regular sun exposure. I could not agree more. I think yeah. that's, I think that's actually really beneficial for, for the eyes. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I guess just a, a quick tangent before we sign off and just a curious personal curiosity. Um, because you know you're an ophthalmologist, what is your impression about the cataracts, which is, of course, oxidative stress in the nucleus of the eye? You know, actually, I forgot to mention to the beginning of this, one of the reasons I like this topic is that before I went to medical school, I, I was, many people don't know this, but I was a uh, technician that removed eyes for transplant. And uh, people who died and donated their eyes, and of course, they don't transplant the whole globe. They just essentially surgically remove the cornea and they use that for transplants. They're probably gonna stop doing that at some point because that's gonna be pretty easy tissue to reproduce uh, with uh, genetic reengineering. But uh, what, and right under that, of course, I got to see a lot of cataracts and it was really interesting that you could see how dark they were in the elderly people and how, you know, and I think I don't remember many of them having had a corneal lens or lens implants, but what, what is your impression as to the, is there a correlation between uh, macular degeneration and cataracts, or are there? Do you think the dietary strategies you mentioned are going to radically reduce the risk of uh, cataracts and having a need for cataract surgery? Uh, you know, that's a great question, and one that honestly I have not really uh, dug into that research. Um, I my <laughs> sort of gut reaction having been a cataract surgeon for all these years is that uh you know we know that for example diabetics get cataracts sooner smokers get cataracts sooner i think in general i do believe that people with uh poor diets in in general tend to get cataracts sooner i i you know i i remember seeing uh, a man that I presented in my book that was like, I think he was 91 or 93 years old, one of the fittest men I've ever seen in my life. And he, he grew up and lived on a farm his whole life. And he always consumed native traditional American food, which was, you know, coming, coming right out of his farm. And this is one of the two men over the age of 80 in my life that had a crystal clear natural lenses well that's what i was looking for so you just supported it right there <laughs> that, is, that is the strategy not a doubt about it but i would encourage you i'm actually a bit surprised that you hadn't integrated that into your analysis because it wouldn't be that hard i don't oh, just to, and if, if you do continue to explore this i would encourage you to 
integrate that because if I'm not mistaken, you as a cataract surgeon, you would probably know. Uh, I think cataract surgery is the number one surgery in the U.S. Oh yeah, it's the number one surgery in the world. Okay, well, I wouldn't didn't know the world could take stats. Yeah, I think it's somewhere between two. I think it's two to three million. I should know this, but I think it's over two million cases per year. Yeah. So. Certainly worthy, worthy of your efforts to describe this because you can help a lot more people. Sure, you know, the, 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 one of the reasons I focus so strongly on macular degeneration is because it is heart-wrenching and devastating to see what happens to people that lose their vision. This is one of the worst things, and as, as you know, if you ever think about losing your vision, it is just tragic, and it's a travesty to me that today 270 people will go blind, and every single one of those uh, from macular degeneration. But it's the same issue with cataracts, though. You will go blind unless you have access to third uh, Western world surgery. You, right. You're blinded. In the past, when they did do it, and in many, as you know, in third world countries, they're blind because they can't get the surgery. Right, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that's probably why that my, you know, given my bias being here in the United States where, you know, we've gotten so good at cataract surgery or we're so successful and it's so rapid uh, that it's not as big a concern for me here. But you're absolutely right. I mean, in Africa and India, places where people can't get access to uh, good surgical eye care, yes, it's blinding. Well, I hope to meet you in person one day, and when I'm over 90, you'll pop an ophthalmoscope in my eye, maybe hopefully <laughs> and tell me, hey, you're the third guy over 90 that's crystal clear lenses, so at some point. <laughs> that would be great, Dr. McCullough, yeah. All right, well, thank you for all your work. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're just a fountain of a treasure of knowledge about this topic and we're all so grateful for you having made this commitment to really extend the breadth of knowledge of, of medicine i mean you really are a pioneer in this perspective and, and i did not mean to to, to uh, i guess build your ego at all but it was a really honest uh, assessment of what i believe the breadth of your work has accomplished i mean it really is historic and and I congratulate you on doing it because it takes a special person. There's not many people like you that have this commitment and dedication, this passion for the truth. And I wish there were more, but you stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't know if I shared this with you, but I even partnered with a, a retina, a well-known retina guy in the UK and mm -hmm. to try to get on stages to present this. Every single major ophthalmology organization, like the American Academy of Ophthalmology, um, a number of retina organizations, the uh, Retina World Conference, every single one of them turned us down to present this. They don't want to hear it. Even after the published paper, they don't want to hear this. What do you, what do you think the reason for that is? Uh, you know, I'm telling you, we're, because we're they're wrong. They're, they've been wrong for so long that they're going to. Yes, have to, I think I, they, 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 the guilt would be so severe they couldn't stand it. I believe that you know, like they always say, people become so invested in their own beliefs. It's so hard for you know all these guys who have been you know believing, researching, and 
and telling their patients for three, four decades or more that, you know, this is a disease of aging and genetics and that I think that's a big part of it. Um, but the American Academy of Ophthalmology even, they turned me down to publish the, a paper, the paper um, which we ultimately published in the journal Medical Hypotheses, but, but they turned me down to present it at the American Academy of Ophthalmology conference. Um, the American Academy of Optometry turned me down. Um, the only yeah, one- the not even the real doctors. <laughs> I know it, I know. I thought that would be a slam dunk. Um, the Christian Ophthalmology Society let me present to them this past summer. That's the only big ophthalmology group I've presented to. That is such a sad commentary on the status of conventional medicine, that they're that blinded and, and unwilling to, in, to even consider yeah. type of approach. That's beyond well-documented. It's You have irrefutable accumulated irrefutable evidence. There is just no counter to what you compile. I mean, it's just slam dunk. That's what I think. I mean, I think it's very powerful evidence. And, you know, the, the, one, of the, one of the things that's comforting to me is that this is what's happened to so many people, just like when Herrick published the, you know, the paper about the MI in 1912. Nobody took him seriously for like a decade. Yeah. And, you know, Harold Ridley that put in the first, you know, developed and put in the first intraocular lens in 1948. It was 20, it was 1975 before the American Academy of Ophthalmology even accepted him as, you know, he was held in disregard and disdain for decades. <laughs> really? They just crucified well, him. I, I guess you're in good company then. And to, to know that this is just the course of the advancement of, of science not just health, but science and medicine. Yeah. So it's just the way of the world. And, uh, but we'll do everything we can to accelerate the process because there's no reason that people need to suffer needlessly with this, this type of approach. When there's so, the, uh, the, the remedy is so foundationally simple and it's just ugh, crazy. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. It's, it's such an honor and a pleasure to be here with you and to do this interview and thank you for helping us to get this yeah. work because you're this is ultimately reaching people that will save vision and i thank you yeah. so much for helping with yeah we'll, and we'll have you back on again too because i know you're writing another book and uh you know when, whenever you finish that just let me know and we'll get you back on again to give us an update because we can go on for hours and hours and hours with uh, all the information you compiled so it won't be hard figuring what up what to talk about so Right. If you don't mind me mentioning, our website is... Oh, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Sometimes I forget. Yeah. Tell us where people can find out more about what you do. Okay. Yes. So the website is cureamd.org and the organization is Cure AMD Foundation. We are a nonprofit 501c3 charitable organization. We give away the books for the uh, cost of printing. And, and the ebooks are available for the cost of a download, which is 50 cents. Our goal is to reach as many people as possible, and we are otherwise supported only by charitable contributions. But our goal is to save vision from this.
horrible disease, macular degeneration. And so once again, thanks for helping us to do well, that. Well, we, we will make sure that information is really uh, prominent at the article on the article so people can easily access that. And, uh, and I want to extend your goal because if you save vision with the strategy that you're advocating, you are also radically reducing, if not eliminating your risk for cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and Alzheimer's. So you get all for the same, same strategy. And right. why would you not want to do that? <laughs> right. I totally agree. It's all the same thing. The, yeah. the same diet that saves your eyes. Saves yeah. Your yeah. You know, people would come in, you know, they, you know, modern medicine is so good at diagnosing it and developing these very sophisticated Latin names to give them a label, you know, and, and, right. and, and so it, it doesn't matter, you know, what's like what you have. It's, it's almost the, whatever illness you have, you know, I would say the vast majority, maybe 85, 95%, it's the same treatment strategy. It's the same thing. It's the things we talked about today. You've got to do those first. And there's some other fine tweaks that are, you know, that we don't have time to talk about now, like EMF and exposures and other things like that, that, you know, radically increases oxidative stresses. But that's what it is, you know, simple basics. All right, well, thanks again, and we, we will definitely have you back on. Thanks, Dr. McCullough. I appreciate it.